Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 29th, 2014, and my guest is Robert Solo. He is Professor Emeritus at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he has been a professor since 1949, which I find very impressive. Uh, Equally impressive, he received the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1987. Professor Solo, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. Glad to be here. You're often credited with launching growth theory, uh, a claim you modestly dismiss. Uh, But talk about your papers a long time ago in the 1950s that at least launched, if not growth theory, your contributions to that theory. What were you trying to achieve and what can we learn from that work? Well, I I think the thing to remember, if anyone can remember that far back, <laughs> is that in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, questions about growth, about uh, growth in various parts of the world, were in everybody's mind. Uh, now, some of that became talk about economic development, and and I, as a you know a young economist, had had no real uh, understanding of what went on in underdeveloped countries. But I was interested in what governs, like, and I was interested, like everybody else, in what governs the long term growth of an economy and why some. Some industrial economies grow faster than other, and what there was on offer in economics was the work of Roy Howard and FZ Domar, and the way the way they had developed an understanding of economic growth had a very peculiar aspect to it, which was that the long-term growth path of an industrial economy tended to be unstable, intrinsically unstable. And I'm not speaking now just of the fact of business cycles that everyone accepts, but the notion that that uh, the reasonably smooth growth was not an attractor for the economy. It didn't, it didn't tend to be a normal state of affairs, but something that if you got anywhere near it, the most of the pressure was to move away. And that seemed to me not to characterize the long-term history of modern industrial capitalism. Uh, even the depression of the 1930s was a depression, and it, it ended uh, in the war uh, for perfectly understandable reasons. So I, I started to think about that, and and there are a lot of ways one could have gone at that question, but I went at it by uh, uh, trying to think about the varying capital intensity of uh, of growth, the fact that uh, if if an economy that saves a lot can afford to have a a capital intensive highly 
capitalized uh, uh, kind of production and economy that doesn't save very much can still grow, but will gr- would grow in a more labor-intensive way. So I I I tried to work that out in using you know fairly standard uh, economic ideas and. Uh, it worked out. It worked out in the sense that there was a, a neat way of representing that and thinking about it. And not only that, but it produced uh, a startling result. It, the theory seemed to lead in a direction that I certainly hadn't anticipated, which was, and this was rather different from what Howard and Domar had seem to indicate in their way, what what turned out was that the volume of saving and and therefore capital investment was not a determinant of the long-term rate of growth. It was a determinant of whether that growth path was high or low, uh, a country that successfully saved and invested a lot would be richer than a country that uh, only managed to save and invest a small amount. But the growth rates would depend entirely on the demography, the rate at which the population and the labor force were growing, and on, uh, in the broadest sense, technological progress. And what I mean by broadest sense was um, I wasn't thinking primarily well, the truth is I was thinking algebraically, not in terms of, mm-hmm. of images, but not not necessarily mechanical invention, but organizational inventions and things like that. But in any case, it turned out that the, the long-term rate of growth was a matter of demography and technological uh, progress. And this work, and so, this work launched a, a large literature. In- oh, yeah. Uh, it, it did. It did catch on. I think it caught on because it was neat and simple, and it seemed to lead somewhere. It, it led to the things that you hadn't thought about uh, casually, and and then uh, immediately after after doing that, I started looking at data for the U.S. and uh, it, it's amazing to think about now. But what I was able to find that for for the, the numbers that I needed to put flesh on that uh, theory covered the period in the U.S. from 1909 to 1949, uh, a mere 40 years, and uh, and uh, you know not a very long not a very long stretch. But when I analyzed those those time series, those data, uh, it turned out that what the what the history of that period seemed to be saying was that, in fact, almost all, more than 80% of the long-term average growth of uh, output per person of, or of income per person uh, was could be traced to this broad sense of technological progress, and that even between 1909 and 1949, very little of the, you know, fairly 
enormous improvement in uh, in income per head and the standard of living in the U.S. Even over that period, only a relatively small amount came from uh, uh, the nitty gritty of of saving and investment, and and more than four fifths of it you could track, at least the way I devised to track it. Uh, you could track to uh, what an economist calls shifts in the production function, and which, which translates into um, the capacity to get more output per unit of input, technological progress in the broadest sense. So, so that that that's what I what I did then, and it did catch on, and and people worked at it. Both of these uh, aspects. The model building and the uh, empirical uh, uh, thing. Uh, for instance, just to give an, a, one example, uh, uh, a, some, a good friend of mine, Padma Desai, uh, tried to use the empirical apparatus. She was a student of the Soviet Union, what was then the Soviet Union. And what she found was that, uh, unlike the U.S., the and by the way, you might remember that in in the uh, post-war years, the the fact that the Soviet economy was eventually going to collapse was not so clear. And yeah. and you know Khrushchev's remark about how we'll bury you, and he meant economically. But but uh, uh, Padma Desai found that that the Soviet Union was just the reverse of the U.S. And that what what increases in in income per person had been achieved there had been achieved by grinding down consumption and investing in heavy industry, especially an enormous amount of the national income, which suggested right away that over the long haul, uh, uh, Khrushchev was not going to bury us, but the other way around. Turned out to be the case. So this was a, this got to be a popular thing, and of course, other people worked at it and uh, and uh, either improved it or at least elaborated it. And uh, and and that goes on today. Uh, you pick up a, a textbook in in macroeconomics or in growth theory, and uh, you can find uh, starting with the model with the way I simple way that I started doing it, an enormous amount of elaboration that goes on with that. So I have the great disadvantage uh, uh, and advantage of, of being, first of all, many years removed from studying your model in graduate school, which, which of course I did um, in, the, um, in the late 1970s. But I haven't thought much about growth theory. I've thought a lot about growth and I've interviewed a lot of people about growth on this program. And the first thought that comes to me as a naive economist is one that I, I know you're aware of, which is, well, then the question is, where does technological progress come from? Where does this op, this ability to, to get more from less come from? And one of the thoughts that I think inevitably crosses one's mind is that it comes from that investment. So explain how that, in other words, if you have no investment, if you have no savings, if all you do is consume your current product, 
it seems difficult to shift the production possibility frontier or to change the production function or to speak in layman's terms to get technological change. So in your mind, both then and now, where does technological change, where does productivity come from? Well, you know, that's, that's, it's not, that's not an easy thing to pin down. Technological change itself, I, I think, comes from, uh, at the beginning, research and development activity uh, uh, in, a, in a capitalist economy, in our economy, business firms are, are always looking for an advantage or looking for a way to increase their profits to get ahead of the competition uh, if there is competition. And one of the ways they try to do that is to improve, is to uh, reduce costs, put it that way, to find uh, cheaper ways of producing what they now produce and another way they, another path toward uh, improving profits and gaining competitive advantage is by inventing, uh, designing newer and better uh, uh, products. Now, here I have to, I want to digress for a minute. It occurred to me very early on, and I wrote about this, that uh, new technology often needs ordinary, plain, vanilla capital investment in order to become real. If you, uh, uh, if you design uh, a new way to produce whatever you're producing, it may be the case that in order to, in order to, uh, to actually uh, make good, perform on that new method, you need uh, different machinery, different factory layouts. You need ordinary capital investment. And I tried... Uh, and succeeded in a way very early on in in working out a way of uh, of incorporating this fact in the theory. Uh, the interesting thing is that it still turned out when you looked at the very long run that uh, it was still the rate of technological improvement that governed the long term the really long-term rate of growth. And the explanation for this turned out to be that what you can, if you're trying to conceptualize this, if you're trying to think about it, what the fact that you need ordinary capital investment to, to embody, to, to, to really have, make good on, make a, make a new technology effective, what you're really doing is making the age distribution of the stock of capital goods. You're shifting it toward the younger end. Yeah. You can think of, of the, the population of, of machinery and capital goods like a human population as having an age distribution. Mm -hmm. uh, young ones and middle-aged ones and eventually old enough to either be uh, obsolete or, or physically useless. And, and what this connection between new technology and, and plain vanilla capital investment says is that in order to, to move toward a newer technology, 
you have to make the age distribution of the stock of capital goods shift in the younger direction. That can't go on forever. You, there's, there are limits to the capacity of any economy to, to produce young capital goods, just as there are limits to a human population capacity to produce young kids. And, and in the long enough run, what, the, what this, when you incorporate this in the, in the story, you don't change the story about the rate, the long term, the permanent rate of growth, but you do change the mechanics of it. So in the end, I, I think what you have to say, or, or as it seems to me, is that the source of technological change is uh, research and development. And then a little beyond that, the, the act of, I was a student of Joseph Schumpeter's, among others, and he had this uh, half mystical, half real <laughs> thing about innovation yeah. and entrepreneurship as distinct from, from uh, mere technological maneuvering. An entrepreneur is somewhat different from an engineer or different from an inventor, yeah. actually. And I think all that does play a role. We understand very little, I think, about, about innovation as distinct from, from the development of science and the development even of technology. Uh, but, but that's where the, the source of it all is. It's, it's, you know, creativity and all that and creativity motivated, you know, in part by, uh, by just sheer playfulness, the way people are, but also in, in very large part by uh, the search for profit and for competitive advantage. And, so, as, and as you point if out, you want to encourage, if you want to encourage long-term growth, somehow you've got to encourage both technological invention and, and innovation. Yeah, when I used to teach... Um microeconomics, I would give a, uh, a poor person's version of growth and, and trying to capture how our standard of living is improved over time by the fact that cost curves shift down. Firms find new ways to make stuff cheaper, uh, the same quality at a lower cost, and they, through competition, to the extent there's competition, they, they're forced to pass those savings on to customers. That model, which I think a lot of us teach some version of in, in micro, doesn't capture the whole, the more revolutionary idea of finding a new way to serve that consumer desire that uh, is totally different. It's cheaper in some dimension, but it's not it's calling it cheaper. doesn't really do justice to it. So, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the that's, that's right. I'm in, in later, in later work, I, 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 uh, I'm doing all this as a, as a theorist, as a modeler, I try to work out a story in which there are, uh, a big time major improvements and and then once one of those takes place it creates an opportunity for a lot of small further uh improvements and i think the story of uh, of technological progress is a lot like that and it yeah. it one of the things it means of course is that uh it's very rare for uh, uh even apart from business cycles it's rare for uh, 
growth to be smoothly exponential, X percent a year, forever. Uh, there are going to be uh, changes in the rate of growth as these major inventions occur and as, as uh, experience with the major inventions allows improvement. I spent some time, by the way, uh, a number of years on a science advisory committee to um, a big automobile company. And uh, one of the pieces of enlightenment that came to me then was to realize how much day-to-day technological progress doesn't involve research and development people. It occurs on the shop floor. Tinkering. Some, yeah. yeah, somebody somebody realizes, you know, we could attach the bumper to the to the chassis just as securely using many fewer fasteners than we're using now if we did it this way rather than that way. And if it works out, uh, that, that lowers cost. That's an improvement in productivity. And the research laboratory uh, never saw it. doesn't have anything to do with it. It's yeah. done by some foreman and, uh, and uh, by trial and error. Talk, so, talk about the, the work of Paul Romer. And uh, endogenous growth yeah, theory. Yeah, that, that's 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 very that's interesting. It's interesting both in itself and as part of the history of economics. Uh, Paul Paul Romer, a very bright guy, uh, had the the notion to try to make a fairly precise model of uh, that is a a step by step theory of the of Profit-motivated innovation, and and this this got to be popular under the name, under the the label of endogenous growth theory. Endogenous meaning that you don't depend on some, as I did, on on some poorly understood process of of uh, changing tech, improving technology, improving product, and improving uh, productivity. But you treat you treat uh, creating higher productivity as itself uh, a business with with the costs and payoffs, and you try to incorporate that in in the whole story of economic growth. And and it was interesting for for me. It was sort of amusing in a way because people would would say to me how could you have been so stupid as <laughs> as not to realize that making making uh technological improvements is itself an economic process to which my answer was of course i understood i i knew that i just had no idea how to think about it so uh, uh naturally i i didn't think about it uh but but Romer and a number of other uh, economists after him, and actually uh, a, a one-time colleague of mine, Carl Schell, had actually written some papers doing the same thing a, a decade or two before. Uh, and so this is this was an idea that that uh, uh, was a, a natural for economics, uh, and and so Paul. Romer and his the school that sprung up 
doing that, uh, there was a whole proliferation of models of this kind. The interest in that seems to have fallen away. And Paul Romer himself has gone on to, uh, to other things. And in a way, uh, I, I almost feel as if the, the, the story of endogenous growth theory, of, of, of treating innovation, technological innovation, as a business process itself is, is too hard. Yeah. It's just not something that the, um, to, to try to, to theorize about it, to make a theory of it, requires you have to just choose one way of looking at it, and in fact, it must happen in a million different ways. And, and so I don't, uh, it seems to me that endogenous growth theory didn't fulfill the promise that we all expected it would have. And, and there's not, not as much interest in it now as there was before uh, because of the realization that it, it, it didn't unlock anything that was really terribly useful. But, you know, some smart person may yet uh, find a good way of analyzing that process. We all we all know that a lot of uh, innovation occurs as a business process. I keep telling myself we also all know that a lot of innovation comes as a matter of dumb luck yep. and uh, trial and error. You set out to, you set out to solve problem A. And you fail totally to solve problem A, but you solve problem B that wasn't in your head at all. And so that I don't know that we're going to get very far down that line. Yeah, it seems to me it, it was um, a, a nice descriptive theory, but it has not, it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, uh, led to much a, deeper, a much deeper understanding than Schumpeter, which uh, you alluded to earlier. Um, yeah. Now, in 1987, you famously said you can see the computer age everywhere but in the productivity statistics. Um, has the investment in computing made a big difference, a small difference, and have we been able to measure it? Has th- have things changed? Yeah, that, that, that line of mine, which was in a book review in a newspaper, um, has, uh, gets talked about more than anything else. Yeah, it was, sorry. It was when I no no that's all right. <laughs> it's interesting. It was it was true when I said it. Yeah. Um, there was there was talk, um, and the book I was reviewing at the time was talking about the vast computer revolution and how it had changed our lives. And and as I said, there, we were all very conscious that there were computers and and things were going differently. But there was no measured increase in productivity. Well, over the years, there came a measured increase in productivity. And, and when that happened, it, it happened in an interesting way. It turned out when, we, when there were first really clear indications, maybe eight or ten years later, uh, of of improvements in productivity on a national scale that that uh, could be traced to the computer statistically, 
it turned out a large part of those gains came not in the use of the computer, but in the production of computers. Because the 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 cost of a of a item of computing machinery was was falling like a stone, and the quality was at the same time, the capacity at the same time was improving, and people were buying a lot of computers, so this was not a trivial industry, although not an enormous industry at the time. And and you got big productivity gains in the production of computers and printers and whatnot. But you could also begin to see productivity improvements on a national scale that that traced to the use of computers. Interestingly, um, I got involved in some uh, uh, some work, quite a lot of work actually, with uh, the McKinsey Global Institute. And we discovered that on the national scale, an awful lot of the of the improvement or the acceleration of the productivity trends that came from computers came surprisingly in wholesale and retail industry. This was not, you know, the most sophisticated gee whiz uses of computer computers, but it gave you small improvements in output per person, and there are an awful lot of persons working yeah. in retail and wholesale trade. Well, so, the, control of, uh, that, the, the control of inventory costs, just as an yeah, example, is incredible. Inventory costs of, of check, at checkout counters, you know, all, all kinds of, uh, of things. Uh, and, and so uh, eventually, it, eventually, you've got to see the computer also in the productivity statistics, and you still you still do. Now the the question is today. Uh, this doesn't involve me anymore particularly, uh, but as an observer today, there are begin beginning to be questions as to whether the main uh, productivity gains from uh, information technology may not be behind us, may not have passed, and, and, and by the, low, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, have already been plucked, and what we're, what we're doing now is, uh, uh, is refinement. And so the, maybe the, the decades of substantial gains in productivity as a consequence of, of uh, information technology and competition and computational capacity have gone by, but I, I don't know about that. What do you think about this uh, issue? We've talked about this on EconTalk before, that many of the benefits um, of the computer revolution and the Internet are not particularly monetary. So, for example, oh. Wikipedia, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google, just to pick four off the top of my head, uh, I don't think I pay anything for any of those directly. Obviously, I can pay indirectly in the form of higher costs due to advertising and other things. But the change in the quality of my life from those things is very hard to measure. But it's very, very large. Yes, we all we have to all we can do is measure GDP. On the other hand, keep in mind that this the fact that that a large part of the benefits that of the human benefits from uh, standard of living type benefits from uh, information technology 
are are free and are not measured in GDP, that that kind of thing is not new with information technology. My friend Bob Gordon will remind you that an awful lot of the benefits from the invention of the flush toilet don't get measured in GDP. That's correct. Uh, uh, either and and most most in, inventions, I suppose, uh, create what economists call consumer surplus. That is yep. benef- benefits beyond what you actually have to pay for. And and we always tend to be impressed with, the, with what is happening to us now. But uh, there was a time when what, what was happening to us now was, uh, was that sewage didn't run in the streets and they didn't stink and you didn't get sick. And yep. those things uh, also didn't warrant priced into GDP. So that's, I think that's a moot point. It's no doubt true. The question is what its significance is. Now, let me ask you about your, your friend Bob Gordon uh, and and Tyler Cowen and others who have, and recently Larry Summers, worrying that we're in some period of possibly extended stagnation. Tyler's a little more optimistic, but uh, in the longer run. But uh, some have suggested we pick the low-hanging fruit. Um Others are, say that's just – that's absurd. There are enormous unimagined gains coming from innovations we just can't foresee. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I don't know. What, what am I to say or what is anybody to say when I'm told that there are gains coming that are unimagined and unimaginable? If they're unimaginable, I can't imagine them. <laughs> I think it might happen. Yes. You bet. <laughs> the, fact, the fact that I can't say what they might be – that comes from the fact that they're unimaginable, uh, and uh, uh, you know. And but some you can see, or you can see the potential of. Correct. But but then you have to worry about their significance. For instance, you are now speaking to a ninety-year-old uh, retired economist. The the extension of the lifetime of the longevity of people that. Could, could continue still further. I, I think I think biologists and medical people have some notion that that the there is a a maximum length to human life somewhere around 130. But um, I'm not even sure about that. It could be like taxi cabs. Uh, every little every part will be replaced, but at least the name remains the the same. But but you can imagine that there will be uh, over the next decades when my children and grandchildren are still around, there will be gains in longevity beyond the very substantial gains that the uh, that we have. I never expected to live to be ninety and be talking on the telephone to you for that for that matter. So um, they could they could live longer. You want to hope that they'll live a lot longer productive lives as well, or at least Enjoyable lives uh, as well, and that, and that and that's hard to that's hard to foresee. So I don't really know how to answer uh, uh, the the people who say you shouldn't worry about the possibility of a much slower growth of capacity of potential output in the future because. There will be these marvelous technological changes that nobody can think of. If nobody can think of them, then you can't think of them. 
but that doesn't mean they won't happen. They might, but but I don't know what. You're just testing whether you're an optimist yeah. or a pessimist. I, I think guess. That, and, I think that's there's a lot of truth to that. And it, but as you point out, I, uh, to combine your uh, early remark to what you just said, we do see incredible in, uh, inc- increases and effective changes in uh, in research and development in the biotech world that that do promise to have some create some serious uh changes in our life in a good way so uh i'm i am an optimist i guess so that that's probably why i'm not so worried uh now let, let's shift gears a little bit uh we'll get a little more contentious here you've written recently that milton friedman was quote bad for economics and bad for society I want to leave out the society part for the moment. I want to focus on the economics part. Uh, why do you think he was bad for economics? His contributions to the role of money in the economy, his skepticism about the Phillips curve and the ability to fine-tune the economy, those seem to be kind of good for economics. Um, do you disagree? No. Well, keeping – the question was a little little different. Uh, I have – I have no interest at all in denying that Milton Friedman, who was a friend, made contributions to economics. What, what I was being asked about was the 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 question was was asked in this form: Why is there no Milton Friedman today? Well, that can't mean the question couldn't have meant why is there nobody. Uh, contributing to our analysis of consumer expenditure or contributing to our analysis of monetary policy and so on because the the woods are full of people that are doing that. What they meant, what the question meant, and the question that I was answering uh, in my mind was the, 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 the things that set Milton as different from other economists and in particular, the fact that, in my mind, he was uh, he was not given to doubt, and he uh, was was in the problem was that I thought an awful lot of other economists' time got spent in either real or uh, or. Uh, Side table debates with Milton over over broad issues of economic policy. I mean, very broad issues of economic philosophy. policy. Yeah, yeah, philosophy that seemed to be to be a diversion to to get nowhere. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, that's the sort of thing I had. In my, I think that the more I'm perfectly happy to have arguments about uh, monetary policy is a constant rate of growth of the money supply a good target to give the Federal Reserve? Or should you do something else? Uh, Does the uh, globalization of of, of finance affect the way you would instruct your central bank to behave? Uh, Should you licensed taxi cabs in New York City. Uh, I mean, all of those are, are questions that I'm perfectly happy to have people discuss and was perfectly happy to have Milton uh, discuss. What I, was, what I was, a 
against was the, the, the question, why is there no Milton Friedman today, is a little bit like the question, why is there no Joan of Arc today, or, or whatever. And, and that kind of, that side of Milton, the, as the ideologue, I thought was a waste for economics that diverted people from, uh, from doing their daily jobs. Yeah, that, that question was raised in a, uh, by the Econ Journal Watch. We'll put a link up to that issue and to, to your contribution to it. I guess I'd have to say that uh, I think there is a, a Milton Friedman alive today. His name is of the kind that you're talking about. His name is Paul Krugman, and he is also a man who's fairly free of doubt. And when I say another Milton Friedman, I'm talking about someone who speaks to the masses about about public policy generally as well as some arcane economics and makes it accessible. And I think that was Milton had many distinctive uh, aspects, uh, but that that I think is what was uh, particularly unusual about him. As you said, there are many great economic theorists, empirical economists, uh, but, but the people who can combine their academic understanding and then speak to a general audience, there's only a handful of people who've been able to do that. And um, uh, Paul Samuelson was one. Uh, Paul Krugman is doing it today, but he isn't doing it from a free market perspective. And so in that sense, he's not another Milton Friedman, I guess. Yeah, but but Paul, Paul, by the way, Paul Samuelson, whom I knew intimately well, was my closest friend, was utterly different from Milton in the respect that, that uh, Paul Samuelson always had doubts about the truth of what he was saying. Paul was, was never uh, a sort of person. In fact, he changed his mind quite frequently, something that I think Milton did not do. Uh, and so the, there's a, the, the art of, of, uh, of speaking to a broad public with a, with a foundation in solid economics is a very difficult art, and not many people can do it at all, and even fewer can do it well, I guess. But that that's a little different from the 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 lack of any skepticism, the 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 idea, the sort of ideological drive. You can, I think, there's a difference. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me defend Milton for a second, uh, and then we'll then we'll move on. Unless you want to uh, bat, hit back, um, I, I think Paul Krugman and Paul Samuelson, yourself. Uh, me, just about every economist has an ideology. Uh, I do agree with you that Milton was um, uh, very confident in his principles and often confident in his the application of those principles. So I, I take that as a legitimate criticism, but I think you have to consider the fact of where he was coming from. When you are a voice in the wilderness, and he was an extraordinarily uh, lonely voice for a long time, both philosophically and in terms of economic theory, for example, and thinking about the importance of money, uh, you do have to have perhaps a different uh, public persona in how you present your ideas if you want to dent the consciousness of both the profession and the public. And he did that successfully, whether that was a, a good – I think it was a good thing, but uh, I can understand you might disagree. But I suspect his, um, his jovial confidence, which definitely was part of his uh, demeanor, was uh, – was a marketing was a marketing point for him as much as anything else. It may have been a personality trait as well to deal with it. 
Well, I accept that it's a marketing point, but uh, I think that's right. And marketing is not something, you know, is the marketing of ideas is uh, is an activity that that's very iffy. Uh, we all know that people who market snake oil, for instance, or market goods, are not above uh, fooling the the consumer, the customer. And we like to think that people who market ideas don't do that. And and so I don't I don't. I, I don't think that's, have much. Yeah. I don't have much faith in in the marketing by uh, faith. I don't have I don't have much attraction to the marketing analogy at all. But I really don't want to argue about Milton and Saint Peter can handle this between them. As far as <laughs> I, I'm not sure he's going to be seeing Saint Peter, but not, not because he's <laughs> heading south. But um, anyway, uh, let's let's talk about um, Keynes. Uh, you've written that Keynes' general theory is one of the great contributions of the last 100 years. It certainly is the, one of the most influential. I would say it's the most influential economics work of the last 100 years. Uh, for those of us who are skeptic, uh, skeptics about uh, the value rather than the Im- impact of Keynes' theories, what evidence might one provide to convince us? So I, I'm really asking a broader question, which is why is there so much disagreement in macroeconomics over the most fundamental things. Um, well, those are the, the question about Keynes and the question about about why there's disagreement are are separate questions. So let me. I'm going to say one minute on Keynes and then a, a few more minutes on the on the other question. I, but I think that, that in the broadest sense, the the true significance of Keynes can be say, stated fairly simply. Uh, for most of the history of economics, there was no careful distinction drawn between the capacity of the economy to produce goods and services and the willingness of the or the ability of the economy to sell those goods and services, to get them bought and consumed. And what in 1936, in the middle of the Great Depression, what Keynes's fundamental achievement, as far as I'm concerned, and it did change economics forever, to my, in in my mind, was to say you really have to distinguish between these things. There is this great economic machine that can produce goods and services which are valuable and which people want, and there is also the question as to whether it will produce them, and it will produce them only if the businesses in the economy can find willing and able buyers for them. And that, that fact creates a possibility of glitches. You can analyze the glitches till the end of the world, and they, they won't be the same in one, two, 20-year period from another 20-year period. But the fact that you start, that I start, and I hope many economists today, start with that distinction in mind. But in our lingo, aggregate supply and aggregate demand, uh, we owe that to the Keynes. And I think that that's important. And it, it is nothing to do. 
I'm not, not wrong to say it has nothing to do. That's not a matter of your beliefs about how monetary policy works or how fiscal policy works. Totally agree. Can it, I just it, um, can I just challenge that for one sec? Um, sure. I, I would argue that there's a better claim to Robert Solow inventing growth theory, much better claim than claiming that that Keynes invented business cycle theory. Because I, I, I've heard this claim before. It's strange. Economists were obsessed with the the business cycle. The the fact that uh, agri- they didn't call it aggregate demand, didn't equal aggregate supply. That they were very aware of the fact before Keynes, that there were times when the economy did not fulfill its potential. Uh, going back, I'd say, at least for 50 years before before Keynes, it seems to me the distinctive contribution of Keynes is you can get out of that problem by borrowing money and spending it through the government. And that, to me, is the central question was whether that is true. Do you disagree? Well, I disagree with that very much. Remember, you're talking to a 90-year-old guy. I was brought up reading all those business cycle theorists. I was brought up on on Pascalion uh, and Spiegel and and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I, I was brought up on Gottfried Hamler's Prosperity and yeah. Depression. Yeah. And and I will tell you that for a person of of reasonable normal intelligence studying economics. All those business cycle theorists talking, or Pigou, for instance, another example, Dennis Robertson, Mises, uh, um, writing about industrial fluctuations and optimism and pessimism and whatnot, they were not ever clarifying the fact that even apart from oscillations, from 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 intrinsically determined up and down, there is this conceptual difference between, come on, you're not going to deny that most economists as of 1936 believed in Say's Law. I believe that except for, for casual interruptions, there would you didn't have to distinguish between supply, aggregate supply, and aggregate demand. So, but I don't no think they thought. But they didn't. They believed in Say's law, but they didn't think it worked instantly. And they thought there was, no, in particular, for labor. Instantly, but they thought that it was uh, it was uh, it was the underlying thing that governed. And and I, I'm reading or learning, or in fact, reading. You know, Gottfried Hobbler was no Keynesian. But he added to prosperity and depression a last chapter after the original edition of the book. And, and it's clear that, that without being a Keynesian or without accepting Keynes's notions of how to deal in policy terms with the depression, it was clear that in, in Hoppler's mind, the general theory had opened up this issue in a way that he, who had written the, the the standard authorized textbook on business cycle uh, or survey, not rather than textbook, business cycle theory, <laughs> hadn't done hadn't done before. So, oh, I don't, uh, I don't, I, I, I think don't mean... there is a real achievement there. Okay, fair enough. Let's let's talk about the. I, I don't mean to deny that there's a. No, right. Okay. 
that he changed the way people think about it. I just think I find it strange. I mean, you mentioned a number of names. You could you could add Mises. You could add uh, Irving Fisher. A lot of people worried about the fact that the economy didn't work so smoothly all the time, and that Tesla law didn't yes. work instantly. Yes, so, but, but there's a difference between not working smoothly and understanding clearly that you could draw a trend of potential output, and then you could draw you could try to analyze demands that out. Okay, so if, if you don't like that way of doing it, you don't like that way of doing it. But uh, but I do. Okay, so the question is for those of us who don't like that way of doing it, which the fact that I'm in that group is irrelevant. But a lot of illustrious people are not in that group. Uh, why don't they accept? Well, the real question I'm asking is: Well, back to, oh, yeah, we, that, the question was why is there so much controversy in in macroeconomics? And there, you know, there I think you. You can. You don't need to talk about specific doctrines in macroeconomics. There's controversy in macroeconomics because a the problems are very complicated. B there is a lot at stake. C there are vested interests on all sides of every issue. And uh, D it overflows into everyday politics. And it would be uh, I would have liked it a lot better to work in a branch of <laughs> economics where those things aren't so, and you can you can sit quietly and do your work and go to sleep. But uh, as a as a child in the depression years, I got hooked on on those macroeconomic questions, and the controversies arise for the reasons I said. You're talking about a complicated issue. You're talking about an issue in which a lot is at stake, the nature and use of the tax system, the nature and use of public budgets. You're talking about a problem in which there are, uh, uh, there are important vested interests on all sides of the issue who are trying to, would like their interests exemplified in somebody's uh, in somebody's doctrine, and you're you're talking about issues which are part of day-to-day politics, which of course means that most of the time, all anybody. One of the sayings for which I am famous is that the 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 length of the shortest true statement about economics is longer than the attention span of most people. And, <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's a natural for controversy. So, well, let me, let me ask it a different way. It's, that's very well said. It's beautiful. Um, but let me, let me ask it a different way or, or get you to, to comment on, on the empirical side. So I went off to graduate school in 1976 uh, to Chicago, and my uh, uh, roommate in college went off to MIT. And we had, of course, a very different experience. Uh, I learned about how powerful monetary theory was, and he learned how powerful fiscal theory was. And he learned about how the government can fine-tune the economy, and I learned that the government can't. And strangely enough, both of us came out of graduate school, I suspect, with a great deal of certainty about the wisdom of our views. I've become, whether this is, I don't know how exemplary this is, I've become much more skeptical about the empirical evidence that supports my worldview. And I think everybody on 
on on all sides should be skeptical about that. So my question is, the fact that that empirical evidence is not decisive in settling these disputes, do you see that as just a question of time as we get better? Or do you see it as an inherent part of point A that you mentioned? It's just a hard problem. It, I think I think it is in fact a hard problem, and and uh, the I'm, it's not clear to me that the accumulation of empirical evidence will make the problem easy, because uh, unlike say the velocity of light, the right answer changes from yep. time to time. Uh, society and the economy changes. The institutions change. The behavior, or the way people behave, and the way the the participants, the important participants in the economy, understand what they're doing, may change. And so, uh, I don't think that the that some 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 fairly narrow issues are going to get cleared up with the accumulation of data, and uh, no doubt, and. Uh, and some have got uh, uh, cleared up, but I don't think that macro is going to become uh, less controversial uh, in any in any important uh, way for the reasons that I uh, that I ranted about uh, just a, a minute ago. Uh, I don't, you know, I I had the experiences that I had and I read the books that I read and and uh, uh, I can't say I was taught the macroeconomics I, I accept now because I wasn't actually. I, I picked that up in the street, so to speak. Sure. I pick up most of what I know. And, and, we all do. Uh, and, and uh, uh, I'm, I, you know, I could, I could contest your description of the difference between a Chicago education and an MIT education. How could you, for instance, think that I was that, that in your MI, your M, alternative MIT self would have believed that that money was not an important thing to study when you were taking those courses with Franco Modigliani and Stan Fisher, or if you'd gone to Yale, Jim Tobin, uh, you. you would have just you would those extreme versions that that you know one side is for fiscal policy the other side is for monetary policy that's 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 part of the everyday uh, uh, distorted discussion that's not what goes on in uh, in the academic department that I know about and, uh, it isn't uh, that's it's a great point it isn't what goes on but it it is what is yielded from, unfortunately, I think, yielded from those departments when it gets into the public. That's because there are the vested interests and the the politics and all that. It's true. Now, there's a lot more doubt in the classroom than there is in the the pundit sphere or whatever you want to call it. That's for sure. But we're we're almost out of time. I'd like you to close with a a little uh, thought experiment. Um, If Robert Solo were... uh, 24 or so years old and coming out of graduate school today. Uh, and, and let's say um, uh, not too full of, of, of hubris and a little bit humble, which is hard at 24. I think as we get older, we get a little more humble. But uh, if you were launching your career now, 
what would you be working on? What do you think are the key, not the most effective things for, I'm not asking for career advice for young economists. I'm asking if, if you want to change the world, what would you work on now? If I wanted to change the world, oh boy, uh, that's, you know, that's a question I haven't thought about and, uh, at all. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think that there is some, some special thing. I, by the way, uh, one of the things I might be interested in is the theory of economic growth. We were, we were talking just a minute ago. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I don't think that, I think it's the most important. About about (laughs) the difference between whether we have run out of, of improvements in the standard of living and, and whether, uh, Stagnation, either on the supply side or the demand side, or both, is in the future or not. I think that's an issue that that I don't know whether you could change the world, but you'd sure get to understand something about the world if you could uh, do that. I wouldn't. I still think of growth theory and and uh, what what goes what goes into growth theory, which is primarily the role of capital, labor, and knowledge in the economy is still the important issue for, for better or worse. My guest today has been Robert Solo. Professor Solo, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.